This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. For the past 20 years, I've been working in the apparel industry, sourcing, buying, and printing t-shirts for my clients. The one brand I return to every time is Bella Canvas. They cover all the bases, style, sustainability, color selection, and wearability. These really are the softest shirts available. The best news is they cut their fabric in Los Angeles. And for any of us that know the apparel industry, we know what a big deal this is. Whether you're looking for t-shirts, sweatshirts, joggers, tanks, or long sleeves, Bella Canvas really does have you covered. The best news is that Bella Canvas now has a retail line available at shop.bellacanvas.com where you can find more information about this amazing company and discover online exclusives. Use the code DBI2021 at checkout to receive 20% off your first order. Limit one per customer. Bella Canvas really did fuel the t-shirt movement. Be different. Be Bella Canvas. Across the country, far too many juvenile detention centers see isolation and solitary confinement as an appropriate way to handle challenging youth, in particular, youth with disabilities. But solitary confinement can be dangerous and a serious impediment to the ability of juveniles to succeed once released. This practice is particularly detrimental to young people with disabilities who are at increased risk under these circumstances of negative effects, including self-harm, and even suicide. In fact, one national study found that half of the victims of suicides in juvenile facilities were in isolation at the time they took their own lives, and 62% of victims had a history of solitary confinement. This week we talked to Eddie Ellis, co-director of outreach and member services at the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. We discussed his experience growing up in Washington, D.C., youth sentencing, and what it was like to be sentenced to 22 years at the age of 16. After his release in 2008, Eddie got right to work as an advocate, mentor, and activist. Not only does he share his story, he sheds light on the inhumane practice of youth solitary confinement. In the U.S., children can still be confined to a cell for 23 hours a day. Many juvenile facilities still use this as a form of punishment, even though it's been declared torture by the United Nations. Your call to action this week is to call your state rep and ask them to introduce legislation ending solitary confinement of children.
I, I worked for the campaign for the fair sentencing of youth. I was previously the incarcerated children advocacy network coordinator, where I worked with over 140 former life sentence children and other children sentenced to extreme sentences around the nation, really in 26 states and including uh, District of Columbia. And at this time, I'm now the co-director of outreach and membership services. And uh, a lot of the same responsibilities I have are still there, but some of them have been elevated. Uh, and we work to ban life without parole for children. Now the extreme sense, you know, and at this time, you know, we have a few bills in, we talk about Maryland bill that's in. It just went through the Senate uh, day from yesterday and New Mexico bill went through the Senate yesterday. So we're really trying to fight to ban these extreme sentences and life sentences for children nationally. And I really appreciate the work because, you know, as a child growing up in Washington, D.C., it was, it, was, it was a city that I loved in. You know, I don't feel the same about it now because there's so much change that I don't like about it, but that's my city I was born and raised in. And um, at the age of 16, I was arrested for murder. I got in a situation where a guy pulled a gun on me for an incident that I had nothing to do with. Two days later, that same gun pulling uh, situation occurred where I was coming from the cleaners from getting my grandmother's clothes. And uh, approximately a week or so later, you know, I got a gun because I was afraid of my life. And, uh, you know, the deceit and myself ran into each other coming from a uh, party out of an apartment building in Upper Northwest, Washington, D.C. He pulled out a gun and I pulled out a gun and fired a gun and he was hit. Uh, and unfortunately, he passed away. This was in 1991. My life changed from that moment when I realized hours later that he had unfortunately passed away. The police came and got me and my co-defender, took us to the homicide building, doing a good cop, bad cop thing. You know, your co-defender said this, did you do... I really didn't know how to respond to other than not say anything other than I was protecting myself and my co-defender. That's what it was. The police <laughs> homicide detective wanted me to say more about what happened. You know, even though I admitted to unfortunately taking his life at that, at that time, which wasn't my intentions, but again, guns can do that, you know, and I take full responsibility for what took place uh, at that time as well as now. But you know, we faced 75 years to life in prison. And uh, going to trial, government had a lot of witnesses to testify, you know, about me as a child. Uh, one of the witnesses say that I was short and stocky with a full beard, and I'm 45 and I don't have a full beard now. One said they knew me since I was a child, but didn't know my name at all. You know, but these witnesses testified because they had other charges that they wanted to have dropped. And uh, while going through trial, you know, a lot of depression, anger, sadness, you know, and still trying to grapple to the situation that someone lost their life because of me. And I never wanted to be in a situation like that. Growing up, I wanted to be a professional football or basketball player. That was my dreams. And to me at that time, in the early 80s, you're talking about me wanting to I play basketball and football all my life, even when I was incarcerated, when I could play. But those were my dreams. And that, those dreams for me at that time would allow me to do a lot of things in my community, you know, for my family, and me doing things that I enjoyed. But those things were taken away from me because of my actions. But 
going back to the court situation, again, we faced 75 years of life in prison because of the murder charge. And going through trial, prosecutors saw that certain witnesses was weak. They offered us a plea bargain to 15 years on manslaughter. And I turned it down and I told my co-defendant, I said, you can take it if you want to. I'm the one who pulled the trigger. You know, you can take it if you want to, but I'm not gonna take it because that wasn't my intention to kill him. You know, my intention was to just defend myself and you and not to kill him. So prosecutor tried to get my mother, grandmother and my lawyer to force me to take the plea bargain. And I just believed in that God would do the right thing for me in that space, even though at a 16 year old, 17 year old child at the time when I was going through trial, I didn't know what was going on. Didn't understand or could comprehend most of the words they were using in court. And at the time, I didn't think my lawyers really understood who I was as a 16, 17 year old child and the support that I needed, even though my family was there for me. But at that time, I also needed the people who were put in that space to support me, which were my attorneys. And at times I didn't feel like I got that support in that space. But going to trial, we were uh, we tried to get a separate trial for me and my co-defender for both of our sake because the, the, the situation started behind my co-defender and the guy who died. And we wanted to make sure that both of us had a fair chance if we go on a trial and not taking plea bargains. And I really wanted for him to have a fair shot because he didn't pull the trigger. I pulled the trigger. But we was denied separate trials and we had a one jury verdict, which meant that if they find me guilty on something, they find him guilty on it and vice versa. We go through trial. We almost got a hung jury. Judge made them go back because one of the jurors was saying that they don't believe that I should be found guilty because it was a self-defense situation. But because of the one jury verdict, they saying that the whole situation was created because of my co-defender and this is why it happened. I don't blame my co-defender for it. It was a situation that was brought to me by the, the, the man who lost his life, unfortunately. But we go to trial, jury decided not to find us guilty on murder one because they said the intent wasn't there to hunt him down and kill him or anything like that. Murder two, they said, they didn't want to find me guilty on murder two, but they felt like my co-defendant should have been found guilty on murder two. So because of that, they found us guilty on manslaughter and we faced 35 years with manslaughter. And unbeknownst to me, my victim's aunt sent the victim impact statement to the courts saying that, um, asked the courts to have leniency on us because we were children. She said she was very upset with losing her nephew, but she understood that all of us were children. And she said she hoped one day that me and my co-defendant would do something good with the rest of our life when we get a chance to be free. And um, with that, the judge decided to give us 22 years in prison. And I wound up serving 15 years of the 22 years in prison between DC prisons before they closed DC prisons, private prisons where I was sent to Youngstown, Ohio, and then to the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And within that 15 years, I spent 10 years in solitary confinement. Going in the box, they mind just can't take it. Simply just can't take it, you know. Some people do feel anxious. Some people just, you know, like, yo, I gotta get out of here. 
You know what I mean? All day, I gotta get out of here. I gotta move around, you know? Some people just can't take just sitting in a small space all day, every day. That's a lot. That's a lot, and that's it's, that's brutal on the person's mind, though. So, like, that's, that's brutal, brutal punishment. Like, your eyes, you know, start to play tricks on you. You know, like you start seeing black dots, and, and you, like, focus on them. It's kind of crazy. It looks crazy. You know, like, if I was to sit here and, like, demonstrate it, like how it used to look, it looks crazy. It's like you see the black dots and you're just focusing on the black dots and your eyes is just following them around in the cell all over. And you're just looking and then, you know, you're trying to escape seeing the black dots, but you can't. Like the black dots is it. There's really no black dots there, you know? It's crazy. Uh, six of that was in the Supermax, the Florence, Colorado ADX Supermax, where I stayed from 2000 to 2006. And I went to Lewisburg for my last 30 days or so. I came home in 2006. Since I've been home, one way or another, I've been in this space, 30 days, 40 days out of prison. You know, I, I've created my own organization in 2009 to educate family members, support family members on reintegration process for their loved ones. We did preventive work in high schools, colleges, I had a chance to do an event I called Ball and Four Calls, where we did community and police engagement to have authentic conversations with law enforcement about how communities are being policed. And within that process, we also, you know, played flag football to, to, to try to create a, a sense of unity in that moment to say as a community, we can come together and try to make changes together, you know, understand that we're human beings you know, and that was very important to me because as a kid, most young people in D.C. played football, basketball, baseball, box for Police Boys and Girls Club. And most of these police back then were like, became like people, mothers, aunts, uncles, fathers, big brothers. And for me, that's what I wanted to see. How can we rebuild this community where, you know, we engage in each other in more healthy ways, in respectful ways, understanding that Every young person or, or, or person of color they see, a black person they see, are not a threat or, or doing anything wrong in the communities. So I've done that. I've done work around domestic violence. I've done work around projects that I have called Cool Kids to just educate kids on just, hey, it's good to be cool. It's good to be a nerd, to go to school, to love your craft, to love your art. And I wanted to encourage kids to embrace their smartness and it's nothing wrong. Don't dumb yourself down for anyone. You know, so it's a lot of stuff I did at work around criminal justice and disability because I have a disability. I have epilepsy. And early on, I was diagnosed with dyslexia also. So I have two different forms of di disabilities. And, and I wanted to be in that space to really, you know, uplift people who are impacted by the system who has disabilities because a lot of us didn't get the care that we needed while we were being held in these prisons. So that's a lot of the work I did. And, and I ended up an ICANN member probably over six years ago. And I became an ICANN member with all those things that I was doing for myself and for the community. But what made me become an ICANN member was the brotherhood and sisterhood that was there. The support that, we, that was there for each one.
and a community of people who understood what it felt like to go to jail and have extreme sentences as kids. And that was a space for me where I got a chance to be myself. I got a chance to laugh and cry about things that made me happy or made me sad. And that meant a lot to me. And uh, a few years after being an ICANN member, you know, I was asked, you know, would I like to come on board? And I accepted, you know, with open arms because everything that the campaign ICANN done for me before then was out of love and support of me and didn't ask much of me other than what did I need? How can they help me? And that was so important to me because coming home, a lot of people pulled on me in different ways to do stuff without caring about my emotional bandwidth or what I wanted to do with my own life. The goals I had, it was about me doing what I needed to do for them and them not caring about what I needed to do for myself. I'm in a, a very wonderful space where I can get a chance to fight to ban life without parole for children nationally, where I can meet my brothers and sisters from around the nation that have been impacted by these death by incarceration sentences. You know, and for me, one of the first trips I took was Philadelphia, where I met with Abdullah Latif in Suave. Me and my past manager, James Ross, went to Philly to talk to them about the stuff that's happening in Philly. And uh, Suave showed his program and stuff that he was doing. And for me, I got a chance to see these men and women who were sentenced to die in jail. Let me say something, brother, for me, it was a little deeper than that because I was fresh out of jail. I mean, fresh months. And I knew Latif, but to see two brothers from different parts of the country coming down to Philadelphia, and the only thing you wanted to know was how are you taking care of yourself? What can we do for you? You ain't asked me, what can you do for the campaign? You came down and said, what can we do for you? And I thought that was so important because while you in prison, we don't have that kind of brotherhood because you don't trust a lot of people in prison. So to have two brothers from two different parts of the country coming down to Philadelphia and just saying, yo, we're here for you. What can we do? What do you need? I just thought these guys are either some good ass kind artists or they're the, or they're the real deal. Yeah. Are they the real deal? So I asked that team, yo, if they serious? They was like, that's what we're here for. And that's all I needed to become an ICANN member. You know, when, when I see real people, when I see people that just care about my well-being, not what you're doing, not what you got, but what can we do? That really touched my heart. And then when my situation happened, when I went back to prison, the only people that came to my rescue with no doubts was you, Latif, Jody, and the ICANN organization. And I will always say that. Like, y'all ain't asked what happened. Did you did it? The only thing you asked was, are you all right? And what can we do to help? So I just want to thank you for that because... I don't think you understand what you mean to the thousands of thousands of formerly juvenile lifers that you come across. You don't realize it, that you like an angel to us. You know, I have a brother 
and he's a cop in New York, and I love him. But he never asked me, what can I do for you? It's always, you know, let's do this, let's do that. You know, you the only one that ever asked me. Yo, self-care. Today, I could speak about self-care because you taught me what self-care was. Because when I came home, I was like you. Everybody was pulling from everywhere. I was trying to fit in. So every time somebody asked me to do something, I did it. And I forgot that I was dealing with my own trauma. I was dealing with the trauma of seeing my grandfather killed when I was 12. I never dealt with that trauma. And I suppressed it. I said, you know what, I'm good. You was the only one they said, you know what, brother? This situation happened, but guess what? Self-care. And my situation happened where I went back to prison because I wasn't taking self-care seriously. So I want to thank you for just teaching me what self-care really means after prison. And I, and I, I appreciate that, brother. And, you know, it really means so much to me. And when when I came to the campaign, I, I had a friend who, uh, very emotional story for me. He was on death row in North Carolina for 19 years. Was exonerated through DNA and evidence and a lot of other stuff. But he got out in 2006, like I did. And me and him met up through a program, national organization, that we was on the board of directors and a client policy client policy group within that organization too. So we was part of three prongs of that organization. And when we used to go around doing trainings with client center trainings, trainers with lawyers, trainers with other people who've been impacted by the system one way or another, we speaking, telling our story. Nobody really asks us how we really felt. Are you okay to do it? How are you feeling afterwards? Or do you want to do it? And we always felt like we had the obligation to do this stuff because of what we went through. We felt like we owed so much that we would deny ourselves the basic rights to feel okay or just say no. And over the years, I saw how it was affecting him. And I used to come to him, hey, bro, man, you got to chill out. You got to back up a little bit. I can see how this stuff affecting you. No, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm going to pray it away. I'm okay. I said, there's nothing wrong with prayer. That's what you want to do. Then, then, then do that. But you also got to make sure that you're okay. If it's someone you want to talk to, go talk to them. Allow them to help you. You was on death row. They don't give you a date to take your life, even though you didn't do this. And he was made to feel in so many ways even though he didn't do it, if he talk about the anger he felt, he was wrong because someone lost their life that had nothing to do with him. So what people done, they took away his opportunity to express his hurt, his anger, his frustration for being dragged down for 19 years on death row for something he didn't do. So going three years now, he took his life. He took his life. And I, I became frustrated, depressed somewhat, angry at so many people that we did work with. Because none of them people considered the trauma that we experienced going to jail as young people. The trauma we experienced was losing loved ones while we were in jail. The trauma of things where we had to defend ourselves or do something in jail. All these traumas. 
When I think of a 16-year-old, think of, you know, prom, boys, friends, girlfriends, preparation for college, big dreams. I don't see being locked down in a cell for 23 hours a day, denied access to education and recreation. I don't think any kid deserves that. There are about two and a half million children who are arrested every year. I'm sure thousands of children in solitary confinement. It is not an easy number to capture because it is not a number that facilities voluntarily choose to report. You don't take a shower every single day. You're smelling, you're stinking. Three days without taking a shower. And I had to learn how to take a bird bath. That's when you go to the sink and start really cleaning yourself. It's often weeks or months that you are completely shut off from that completely natural developmental moment in your life when you are growing from a child to a teenager to an adult. And we interrupt that with solitary. I sent emails to a lot of people with positions, powerful positions, and said a lot of choice words because I was upset. And I, when I came to campaign, I explained this to my man, my, my past manager, and I talked to Jody. Jody said, well, let's do it without question. Right. Jody said, let's do it. That next year, we had our first self-care convening in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where we had close to 22, 23 former life sentence children from Pennsylvania, Arkansas, Illinois, Tennessee. We, we flew people from all over. Don't worry about nothing. You ain't got to pay for nothing. The brothers and sisters in Philly, we sent vans. The other brothers and sisters that flew in, from the airport, we sent vans to get them. We fed people. We had a social worker there. And we talked about things. Accepting what happened in your situation. Learning to forgive yourself. Learning to apologize or ask for forgiveness. Learning to give yourself room to say no. Learning what vulnerability is. We've done all these things where we had brothers and sisters crying. We was laughing, right? We went fishing. People were swimming. We, we, done, we played cards. We talked. We bonded in that moment. And we did karaoke. I was so scared to do karaoke. And I'm like, what does karaoke have to do with self-care? So our social worker that was there said, listen, this is what it has to do with it. Vulnerability. You allow yourself to be vulnerable in this moment. It can affect you and impact you and being vulnerable in other situations and let you know that it's okay to be vulnerable. We did that. When we was leaving, people did not want to leave because we had so much fun. And through that, we started sending out every three to four months self-care newsletters to our ICANN population, to our family, national family members population. The second year, we did Dexter, Michigan on the water, same thing. Flew ICANN members from all over, and we had, we flew in Noam, I guess how you pronounce the name? Noam. In Philly. Yes, Noam, to, to be a part of that with us. And uh, we had somebody else come in to do a program, and same thing. Vulnerability, saying no, moving on, forgiving yourself, allowing yourself to cry. Allowing yourself to feel those emotions that you allowed to lie dormant because you were in prison for so long and it didn't feel like it was the right thing to do in that space. And we did that. 
we did that. And every professional we brought in that space played a role that was so unique and so important because some people needed one-on-ones. She did it. She down by the water, by the fire with people talking to them, helping them, bringing them through, telling people truths on what I heard. This is what she was saying when you were speaking in the group. This is what you can do. And that's what we did. And why this is so important is because mental health, a lot of time in this sense, the self-care sense is not really taken serious by a lot of people. A lot of people don't believe that it will help them. And through self-care, we are now transitioning into a bigger form of self-care, which is community care. And community care deal with, it allows a person to do their self-care things. But community care allows people to feel that you're not doing it alone, that you're within a community of people who care about you, who want, you know, who has your best interest, who will try to connect you with support and resources to help you do these things. And that's the, th- and we want the community as a whole to acknowledge that the kids that we're working, adults that we're working with now, who are kids and sentenced to these extreme sentences, death and others, other sentences, we want the broader community to know that you're also responsible for having a hand in to helping our population heal, to help them be their best uh, person. Not just in being an advocate. If that person want to be home, live, just doing nothing, living their life, working, whatever they want to do, if it's advocacy work, if it's what Suave do, whatever, we believe that they should be supported. We believe that the community should acknowledge that this should not have happened to them and to us as children. And we need to address these things and make sure people, we can't just send people home and not support them and not help them and make sure they're able to be their best person. We can't do that. And, and last year, because of COVID, we couldn't come together physically. So I decided not to go deep because we didn't have social workers there for each individual person. So we decided, uh, you know, my co-director and I, Catherine Jones, decided to do a PowerPoint on the power of laughter and the power of anger. And we spoke of how both can affect the body in, in different ways. We also had two comedians come on to make us laugh. You should have invited me, bro. But listen, you had that email coming. You had that email coming to you, man. You had that email coming to you. Checker, a longtime partner of my company, Social Imprints, is a sponsor of this podcast. Checker is a fair chance employer and the leading technology company in the background check industry. They're building a fairer future through technology that balances trust, safety, and fairness. A past record should not be a barrier to the pursuit of life and professional successes. Checker helps companies and candidates achieve their goals with products like Assess, Candidate Stories, and help with candidate expungements, among others. To learn more about Checker, these expungement services, or how to become a fair chance employer, go to Checker at Checker.com. Thank you, Checker. No, but seriously, bro, I just want to let you know right there, though, as a member of ICANN, with this platform that we have now, we have millions of people listening to us. I mean, the Suave podcast is like taking off and I always said it, right? It's not about me. I'm home. It's about the brothers left behind. Right. It's about the brothers that we still need to help. And I want you to know in the campaign that Kevin and I, we would do whatever we can 
to make sure that the people know what's going on. So if you find any space for us or any event that you need us to come down and fly down there, we're going to come down there and record it live. Because, like I said, I'm a member of ICANN. So guess what? It's my duty to share my platform the same way you share your platform when you came to Philadelphia, put me in there, and took me to D.C., and um, which, by the way, was my first time to D.C., and, and, and you know, and, and show me that it's more than the work you're doing in Philadelphia. So I want you to know that Death by Incarceration podcast is also part of ICANN. So anything that we could do, all you got to do is call, bro. All you got to do is call because we got to support each other. And the one thing that I love about the ICANN is that it don't let you forget your victim. That's right. It don't let you forget the victims. That's right. And I think that that's so important that people understand that whether you did it or not, we acknowledge that a life was taken and that we have to do something different. That's right. And that's one of the things that I love about being an ICANN member. That's right. And you can't get away with just playing the blame game, man. You got to acknowledge that take responsibility, accountability, right. and everything else will come. Right. And I can't do that very well. Right. And I just wanted people to know that whatever y'all could do to support this wonderful group, organization, do it. Because today it could be me, tomorrow it could be Eddie, and the next day it could be your son, your daughter, your grandkid. You don't necessarily have to commit a crime to end up in a situation like jail, especially in these times right. when we're dealing with the um, racist institutions that hates Latinos and blacks. You could just be at the wrong place at the wrong time and you bought that. So this is why we need to support organizations like ICANN. You know, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's very important to us as an organization, CFSY and ICANN, that we take full responsibility for our actions, you know, and be accountable for those things. That's that's one of the criteria to be an ICANN member, that we want people to acknowledge that. And we will never want to forget the people who were lost in this thing and people who was hurt, you know. And we work very closely with a lot of survivors, people who have survivors of youth violence, people who lost loved ones. So we work very closely with a lot of them. And just as well as people, family members who are serving, we work very close with. You know, and we have, I think it's every month, uh, the first Monday every month, we have our NFN calls with our family members. And we, when we have our convenings, when we come together, we had, like, we went to Alabama. A oh, that was wonderful. You know, we had survivor family members and people family members in the room who were serving and have a loving conversation. Even in our, I don't know if you remember, when we had our I Can meeting in our room next door, one of the survivors asked me, could she come in and sit amongst our group? And I told her, yes. She said, I'm nervous. I said, you're amongst family. You don't need right. to be nervous. You're amongst family. And she came in there and she actually told me that this was, a, 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 she kind of healed it in a way, being in that room. Not fully, but in a way of being in that room. Something hit her, touched her in that room that didn't happen before coming in that room. And that's very important to us. You know, and that's why I tell people, you have to acknowledge what you've done wrong in order to grow. And that's a part of self-care also. 
acknowledging where you were wrong and acknowledging who you hurt. Kevin, like you said about NAA, you're acknowledging, right? You're taking responsibility, right? So the yeah. thing is, it's the same thing. You're acknowledging where you went wrong. You apologize the best way you could. And uh, unfortunately, in some situations, people can't because they don't want you to be in contact with the victim's family or the victim right. themselves. But in our space, it's very important. And we don't have an ICANN member that haven't taken uh, you know, responsibility and acknowledged what they've done wrong. And that's that's a part of growth. That's a part of not forgetting what happened and what you've done. But it's a part of understanding that if I want to grow and continue to grow as a human being, I have to acknowledge where I went wrong or I won't be able to change what I did that was wrong. And that's a part of self-care and community care that we wrap our arms around each other and say, it's okay. You're in a space that's safe and a space that supports you. I got a question for you, right? With all the success stories that we have and I can, there's still a lot of lot of work that we got to do. A lot of work. And some of the work is that, and I'm noticing this because I'm going through this right now, mm-hmm. that we come home and in a lot of cities, they have this thing called ban the box. Yeah. But when you get to the next stage of the job interview, they, they're killing it. No, we can't. And I'll give you a situation. I was working at one place, 40 hours a week, good job. I was hired as a case manager mm-hmm. by a nonprofit. They put me through the training, gave me the job. Two weeks later, I get a letter. We are rescinding the offer because of your past. Be mindful, I only got one conviction as a juvenile, that's it. And I lost my job. I lost the job that I had to come work for y'all. And now I don't have a job. And I think that that's an issue that we got to start addressing. And it's happening more than often. Mm -hmm. Especially in cities like Philadelphia. You have organizations. They are moonlighting as re-entry organizations, but won't hire the ex-offender. But you're supposed to be advocating for ex-offenders and returning citizens. And I think that that's an issue that we need to address. So my question is, is as I can addressing that issue on a national level or domestically in, in the cities that's happening, or is that issue had come to your radar? Yes, it has definitely come to our radar. And that's something that we take very seriously. And some of our partners that we work with, national corporations, we are doing things behind the scene with our strategic partnership. You know, Abdullah Latif and a few other uh, staff members are doing things to talk to them about the importance of hiring people, how that looks. And the reality is we are bringing people proximate to a lot of these corporations that have never been proximate to people who've been in our situation to show them why it's important. And I think structurally, we have to look at the system as a whole and say that we have to hit systems, break down systems in ways of letting them know that they should be hiring people. They should not be discriminated against people. And we are having those conversations. And we also having, we have a project coming up, a tech literacy project, where we have right now 20 ICANN members that have been selected to be a part of a tech literacy project. And some of them are receiving um, tablets, uh, laptops, you know, because they don't have laptops. And we have, we're giving them, uh, each one of them a coach to work with them uh, within that time to help them understand the things that they said they need help with. So these are some ways that we can help 
break things down systematically too because some of our members may not know how to submit certain things and need support doing it. We're doing that. We're helping people. We just had a, a workshop where they talked about resume writing, best ways to do it, you know, from someone that's in corporate and what they saw behind the scenes. But we're definitely working behind the scenes with different corporations to try to implement these things and try to speak about it broadly and continue to do that. You know, when we did it, when we was part of the Higher Philly, when we was up there that time, that's what a lot of that was about too. When all of the jobs was there, a lot of these jobs knew that there was gonna be people with criminal backgrounds. Some was children when they went to jail, some was adults. And uh, it's very important to us. And I wanna let you know, early on, when I came home, what you said happened to you, happened to me. Actually, we're Home Depot. I went to Home Depot, it was in Virginia. It, it literally, listen, I'm just coming home really, not been home that long. Don't really not use public transportation. And it literally took me two and a half, three hours to get from my house to that store. And a part of it, I ain't know, really didn't know. I had to have somebody write the bus down for me, what side of the street to stand on, everything. And, but I got there and uh, did the interview. They did a mock run through and passed everything. One last question was like, what if it's something you don't know? What do you do? I said, I'm going to manage it. Or someone who's been here long and I'm gonna ask them, listen, I don't know what it's at, but the customers asked for this. Where can I find it to help this customer? They said, you got the job. You got it. All you got to do is go take a urine. I don't use drugs. I don't smoke. I don't drink. So I said, oh, that's a done deal. And on their application, it said, have you had a, have you been arrested in the last, I think it was five or seven years. The last seven years. Yeah, seven years. So I said no, because I wasn't. So the answer is no. So I went to take the urine. At the place they say I could take the urine, the urine was, urinalysis was submitted. Mr. Ellis, you got the job. I'm waiting to hear back. About a week and a half, two weeks, I get a letter. Because of our uh, background uh, check, we were sending the job. And I'm saying to myself, if your back, if, if your application say in the last seven years and the truth is no, and I passed all the other things, then why are you discriminating against me and not giving me the job? And I'm going to be honest, at that time, I had put in applications for probably about 60 jobs. It almost turned my life upside down in a negative way. Because in my mind, it was like, I'm doing all I can do to get a job, to land a job. People would tell me, it's a one day work here, would you take it? Yeah, it's a one, it's a two day here. I'm taking everything. I didn't care what it was. If it's clean up toilets, if it's clean up trash, I, was, I didn't care. I wanted to work, I wanted to be free and responsible. And for me, it was like, I can't get through these barriers. So what do I do to support myself? And so how my mother was working with somebody and uh, who's become a good friend of mine, and he, he had a cleaning company. And he told my mother, yeah, I, I hired him. He hired me, came to get me for work, everything. And that helped me really from going to the streets. But that experience with Home Depot was so hurtful because it was like, you asked me in the last seven years and I told you no. 
You ask me where I come, yes, but the last seven years, no. But then you give me the job and then you take the job back because you say something happened when I was a 16 year old child. And we have to continue fighting these things. We can't speak on both sides of our net as a society saying that we want people to do right, but we're not giving people adequate opportunity to do right. We're not doing that. We need to allow people to work who have the experience in these jobs to get these jobs, to help train these people up, to be good employees, right? That's the thing. Listen, the insurance I had on my nonprofit, I didn't need to get extra insurance because I was dealing with somebody that was locked up. The same insurance I did when I went into a jail is the same insurance I'd use if I went to a church. So people make up excuses. You know, they have certain things like federal bonding programs that help certain jobs. They can apply, they can help certain jobs with incentives to hire people that they feel is high risk. If you got to do that to hire me, do it. And let me prove to you that I can do it. And I tell people, it's so many of us that want to prove ourselves that we'll do it if given a chance. And we can't keep closing the door on people because people have made, you know, a bad choice. You can't keep judging by the worst thing in most cases in my life. In most cases, made a bad choice when they were children. Right, right. You know, let's let's be clear about that. A lot of the guys that's coming home are not children anymore. They 50, 60 years old. Right. They made that one choice, that one bad mistake when they was 14, 15, 16. So, right. Right. yes, and, and, and I'm going through that and it was frustrated, but I'm learning because I'm sharing it. And um, I right. tell people, you know what? I heard about these kind of things happening. Mm-hmm. And I really never paid it no mind because I had a full-time job. And I was like, that's not going to be me. So it happened to me. And then I was like, wow. And be mindful, I got two college degrees. Whatever job I'm applying for, I know I qualify. Right. You know, but that's but again, that goes back to what I always say. That's the racist ball, uh, the racism in these institutions and HR departments that people feel like I'm not gonna hire that guy because he looks a certain way. Or something happened to me 20 years ago and he reminded me of him. Right. I heard shit like that say it in certain jobs. Right. I used to work at a certain place that was disgusting to hear people say, you know what? That guy reminded me of the guy that stole my tires. Mm. And I used to tell him, yo, you know that's some real racist shit. No, it's not. No, just it is. Yeah. Just it is because what you're telling me is that if I remind you of somebody, you're going to treat me a certain way. Right. Right, but yeah, you know these are the kind of issues, man, that we are going to be bringing to the world and talking to the world. Kev, it's on you, Kev. One, Eddie, thank you. I mean, gee, what a, and especially like I got choked up actually when you're talking about the victim in, impact statement from the ant, and because what we've been talking about with a lot of our interviews and Suave and I talk about all the time is that oftentimes the victims are in some way related to the perpetrator. You know, and it just kind of this circular sort of culture that we've lived in where not only do you know someone that's committed a crime, 
but you know a victim or you've been both, right? Right. And and you send a 16-year-old or a 17-year-old to prison and they are going to be the victim of a crime. I mean, in my opinion, they already are by having to go to a man's prison, no matter what. And then you're talking about solitary confinement for somebody that was that was arrested at the age of 16, uh, in your case, in a prison where they put the worst of the worst. That's where Timothy McVeigh was in that prison. And, and here you are, a, a child, bluntly. But talking about the work issues, you know, and I think this is a huge, huge topic of conversation. It's something that I've worked on for years and years. Most of these programs work backwards. And, you know, I'm guilty of that, too. It's like, okay, I'll offer you an opportunity. But what are we doing as a culture to say to really institute the idea that if someone has done their time, they've done their time and they're done. They don't owe me anything else. You know, as a society, as a community member, I owe them the opportunity to show me what they can do. During this conversation, I got an email. During a conversation yesterday, I got an email. Today's email was from a woman that runs a program in Nevada mm-hmm. that does a reentry program with the community college there. Mm-hmm. She can't find these guys' jobs. Not because they're not prepared, but because she can't connect with businesses that are willing to do fair chance employment. And Nevada is a much different place than California. Mm-hmm. So she's asking me, what can I do? You know, and I give her the same suggestions that I give most people. Talk to the trade unions because they're very open. And let me see what's going on with my industry up there and see if I can put the pressure on anybody to, to open up their, their employment rules. But that's not, a, that's not an answer. That's a so short-term solution. What is your industry so Brother Eddie know? So I run a, a promotional products company in San Francisco, but we have in-house warehouse and screen printing. So I know for a fact, the Nevada example, she's in Reno, that there's two massive warehouses for distributors out of that location that also have sales offices. And in my industry, because there's no trade union, a lot of times you come in as a warehouse employee, you can end up as a sales manager in a couple of years because you learn the industry, you learn how to talk to clients. So the training is always in-house. There's no union, there's no apprenticeship. That goes for screen printing too. So I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm going to call these two companies and put a little pressure on them to start doing some hiring because I know that they're busy. I know they have they have slots open for employees and it's a growth opportunity, but we need to change the paradigm. It's not changing, like getting a few employers to say, yeah, okay. It's basically educating the public first on the front end. How are we dealing with our communities? How are we making sure that we're not spending $81,000 in California to incarcerate somebody on one hand and $12,000 on public school students per year on the other. And that $12,000 includes counties like I'm in, Marin, where the the spend is really high, and then counties like East LA, where the spend is really low. We need to understand that the problems start at the beginning. And then once people, if somebody needs to go to prison, you know, we talk about this too, Suave and I have talked about this, then that will have to, we'll have to do that. It'll work itself out. But sending a 16 year old to Supermax in Colorado, there's no other country in the world that does that. Why are we still in the dark ages? Why are we still the only country in the world that sentences its children, children to life without parole? Right. Why? It's a big flaw. Nobody can answer that question for me. Right. I mean, because in able and able to get the answer, we will have to go all the way back to the slavery. And that's a shame. I'm, I'm saying that. Yeah. How they were using kids right. and, and, and for certain things. Right. 
And but the answer I think Deborah LaBelle gave us the answer. She did. When we spoke to her, how Wayne's County in Michigan um is resentencing fifty one juvenile lifers back to life. Right. Like that's the answer. It's the 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 racism that these institutions haven't eradicated yet. Right. You know, a lot of them talk about we gotta reform the system, but we still have people with that slave mentality in there that don't believe that that system should be reformed. Oh, I know. In solitary, your world is a gray concrete box. You spend between 22 and 24 hours a day alone in your cell. Your bed is a concrete slab with a thin mattress. Three times a week, guards shackle you and take you to the showers for 15 minutes. For exercise, you pace around another concrete box. Sometimes a bit of ceiling is uncovered. This is the only time you'll see the sky. As a punishment, the use of solitary confinement is often an arbitrary decision. I went to the DA's debate in Philadelphia. One of the candidates running for DA, Chuck Peruto, straight up, he was like, I don't care if you're five years old. If you commit a crime, I'm sending you to jail. Yeah, but that probably applies to black and brown children. Exactly. So what I'm saying is, right, I'm tired of these people saying, let's reform the system. I say, let's destroy the system and rebuild it back up with different people, different mentality. Because the system right? is not broken. The system is not broken. The system is exactly. created the way it was created, right? And if you think about this, the system is a, the prison system is a, is a money cow, right? When you look at some other countries who don't look at their prison system, as a way of finances, their rehabilitation process is different. It's more humane. But because the United States used this system as a way and a means to make money, even to put it on the stock market into as far as private prisons, it's a new form of slavery. Shit. If you can tell me that selling a body to another state is not a form of slavery, then what is it? What is it? You know, and that's my personal opinions, you know, but and I want to go back to what you said, Kevin, about the jobs and how do we? We have to humanize people. We're dealing with people, we're dealing with human beings, right? In this in this case, we're talking about human beings who were sentenced to these extreme sentences and death without incarceration as kids, right? These are human beings. We need to humanize them and not looking at them as something else. Because we look at people who had addictions, right? Yeah. When people who are in certain situations see them, they view them as something different. Yep. Ugh, I don't want to touch them. Or a person or brother, sister, other who may be without housing. That we may say homeless, a person without housing. People look at them like they're less than a person. That's a human being. That's mm -hmm. an unfortunate situation. And as long as we continue to look at them as someone other than, we're going to treat them other than we should, you know, less than what we should treat them. And it's the same thing with people who are incarcerated or have been incarcerated as children. Right? You, listen, I, this year be my 15th year home. I've done more work than some people who haven't been locked up and trying to restore and help the community. But I still have to live with that scarlet letter, that F, that felon above my head. No matter what I've done, 
I haven't been rearrested. I haven't done none of that since I've been home. But I still, if I go to, for another job, I still have to prove that I'm not capable of doing the job, but that I'm not a danger to them, even though I've been home all this long. You had one brother that worked for us. He had problem trying to get new buy, you know, get a new house. He been home 16, 17 years. So these things is constant problems. We have to tell people the reality is this. These were kids who made bad choices and take responsibility for what they've done. When do we say that we can't keep the boot on their neck and not allow them to feel what it feel like to be free, to live their life, to not keep being hammered down by what they did when they were children? When do we do that? Right? I had to tell a friend of mine one time, you know, yeah, this is my friend Eddie. He was locked up as a kid. I said, oh, don't introduce me like that. My name Eddie. You know, and I told them, I said, if your mother was a recovering addict, would you say this is my mother, she a recovering addict? Or would you say this is my mother? So it's, it's yeah, right? all of that that we have to realize as a society that when we humanize people and respect people for who they are and where they at, then we in turn start to treat them the way they should be treated. And that's the important thing. You have these men and women now who've come home that have been sentenced to these harsh sentences and death without incarceration as kids come home and they want to work and got the capacity to work and capacity to be trained. They deserve that opportunity. They deserve that opportunity. And that's the thing. Humanizing should be on the front of all of that. Because no matter what, you, I tell people, I don't respect you by your position and your title. I don't. I respect you because you're a human being, because you're a person who happened to have that title, who happened to be doing that. Yeah. I care less about your title. I care more about you as a person. Because to me, when I care about you as a person, I re- then I respect what you do in your life. Meaning if it's positive, you're doing things. And it's the same thing with us. When people start to humanize us, you can then respect us and give us the opportunity that we deserve. Yes, sir. Agreed. I think that's a, a great place to to pause. This has been amazing. I, I just can't even tell you, Eddie, how grateful I am that you came on the show. Such concise and you did exactly what your group stands for. You're humanizing this experience. And the both the passion and the frustration and the the compassion show in everything you're doing and it's just if more people took the time to actually like take a breath and and actually talk to somebody rather than assume anything and it's funny because even the the slight amount that I've had to deal with this over the years you know I was out on a date with my now wife one of our first dates and I got pulled over in the presidio here in San Francisco and it's a you know it's a federal land so it was a federal police local cops can't see my record if I get pulled over. The feds can. Mm-hmm. And the woman says to me, um, at that time I was probably uh, maybe like 12 or 14 years sober. I hadn't been arrested in that long. Well, actually I shouldn't say that. I got picked up on a warrant some years later. But the, the woman comes to the window and, and says, after she looks at my license and says, oh, it looks like you had some drug problems uh, a few years back. Mm-hmm. Right in front of this woman I'm trying to date. <laughs> wow. 
Wow. I said, I said, well, thanks. Oh, by the way, there's an 80 pound Rottweiler in the back of the car who doesn't really like a uniforms, you know, just so <laughs> you know, you know, she didn't think that was very funny, but I just was like, what the, I mean, this is like over a decade and I, I, I never even went to prison. And this is how the police and, you know, society looks at these kinds of things. And that's what they're trained to do. And it's not, it isn't a mistake. You're right, Suave. And you're right, Eddie. This is how the system was meant to work. And we have an obligation to those, for those of us that know better. And this is our goal and our podcast in which we get this message out here. We have an obligation to, to the children that are still incarcerated, to our communities, and those that have been released and that are that are now on things like Suave, lifetime parole, to make changes. And if that change is to blow the whole thing up and start over, I'm all for it. Let's do it. So, so Eddie, man, again, if you know of any issues or anyone across the country that need to address an issue in whatever city that we're not getting wind of, just give us a call and we'll be there. I will. I mean, we got the capability now to... Um, really bring issues to a national stage. And I think these issues need to be where they belong at, national stage. Right. So yeah. if you know anybody that want to come on the show, bring it on, my number. And we're going to make that thing happen. They don't even got to wait too long. We could do that the next day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, you Can know, I say one last thing? Yes, sir. You know, you know, the world is changing so many ways around community care you know, self-care, mindfulness. And it's very important to us as an organization and, and as I can. And if there's anyone who would like to learn more about that, you can please contact us, you know, at cfsy.org. You know, if anybody wants to help out, donate to help support these self-care, community care events, please reach out because it's very important. It's building a lot of, you know, people up and helping them be healthy and understand what that look like which in turn, they take this back to their families and to their communities. So for me, it's like planting a tree, you know, and the roots spreading. And that's what we're trying to do with community care and self-care, plant the roots, you know, and these seeds continue to grow, that restorative justice is important, that self-care, community care is important. And this is what helps build our communities as a whole. Thank you, Jody, Xavier, Eric. I mean, Latif, there's so many of them. Right, the whole ICANN family, keep doing what you're doing and just know that Death by Incarceration Podcast is the voice that we are using to spread the word. Next week, we talk to Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman of Pennsylvania. If I am unable to accomplish anything more in my, my life professionally, making sure that we have freed as many deserving and, and, and otherwise innocent men and women from dying in prison needlessly, uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll be done a, a happy man. We discuss working with returning citizens, low-level offenses, and how he's working to change the laws in Pennsylvania in regards to criminal justice. One of the roles of Lieutenant Governor in Pennsylvania is you chair the Board of Pardons and Commutations. And in Pennsylvania, that is the only way to expunge or clear a person's record. And it's the only way an, an individual sentenced to die in prison, life without parole, has a chance to get out. Also, we will be live in Philadelphia next Saturday, July 17th at the Aikens House. Death by Incarceration will present its first live podcast in partnership with Mural Arts. 
During a two-part town hall-style panel, we will discuss experiences in prison, what it's like to return from incarceration, balancing victims' rights, safety, and fair sentencing, as well as the media's role in creating fear-based narratives. Our guests will include Larry Krasner, Chasa Bodine, and John Fetterman, plus many more. Tickets are limited. Please email Kevin at deathbyincarcerationpodcast.com for media inquiries or questions about tickets. Thank you very much for listening. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.